Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest today is Dr. Hanna El-Sali, Associate Professor of Molecular Virology and Microbiology in the Vaccine and Treatment and Evaluation Unit at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Dr. El-Sali is the chairperson of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, the committee that makes vaccine recommendations to the FDA, and was also the lead investigator for the phase three trial for the Moderna COVID vaccine. Because of her role in studying the Moderna vaccine, Dr. El Sali recused herself from the committee's review of COVID-19 vaccines. She joins us today to discuss both the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines that have been granted emergency authorization by the FDA and what that means for people diagnosed with breast cancer. Dr. El-Sali, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this very important topic. Thank you, Jamie, for inviting me. So to start with, I know both the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna COVID vaccines are messenger RNA or what is shorthand mRNA vaccines. So can you explain how an mRNA vaccine works and how it's different from a live virus vaccine? Sure, they are very different. A live virus uh, vaccine replicates uh, in the human body, um, but a messenger RNA is not a virus. It's the code for one of the proteins of the virus. It is. It often happens that we vaccinate uh, people with the with a particular protein expressed from the virus. Here we are, you know, along similar line. Uh, the messenger RNA is the is the code that gets injected, encapsulated in a in a lipid component uh, as a as a vaccine. And once it's in the body, our cells produce the protein, and from there on, it's every the sequence is kind of similar to what happens when we get a protein vaccine. So, in essence. Um, this particular technology allows the expression of a protein once in the body and does not require um, a live virus and is not a live virus. Okay. And that should set some people's minds at ease because it, they're not being injected with the virus like the flu vaccine. It's just one protein that then encourages the body to sort of respond to that particular protein. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? That is correct. But I would also like to iterate that most flu vaccines we receive also are protein-based. There is one only that is live virus. Oh, And it's okay. mostly given for children. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. So, okay. My mistake. Yeah, the, Sorry about the, that. Yeah. The majority of flu vaccines are um, protein. It's an activated virus, meaning it just has uh, parts of the virus that are uh, not live, and they are enriched for one of these proteins called the hemagglutinin, uh, which we try to mount a good antibody response against. That's okay. that's a flu question. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry for going off on that tangent. Um, now, I know that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are, are fairly similar, but there are some differences. So could you talk about what those differences are? 
sure. The uh, as you mentioned, the two pro the two vaccines are similar in that they are trying uh, to allow the body to express an immune response against the spike protein of the virus. They are both mRNA and they both have a, a lipid nanoparticle component. The difference is uh, in, in, in the lipid nanoparticle component, uh, the uh, Moderna vaccine has one component um, of its lipid particle that is uh, proprietary and it allows for its stability at different temperatures. So this is where the difference lies. Uh, from there on, the, this minor difference in composition also translates into the temperature at which the vaccine is uh, stable. The Pfizer-BioNTech needs to be stored at minus 80 degrees until you know uh, it's thawed and, and administered to the uh, person, while the Moderna one can stay in a refrigerator temperature, two to four degrees, up to a month, which sort of facilitates the, uh, its widespread, I guess, um, use uh, in certain locations. The, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is administered in two shots separated by 21 days. The Moderna vaccine is administered as two shots separated by 28 days. And the Pfizer vaccine uh, is granted authorization from age 16 and older. The Moderna one is granted authorization from age 18 years and older. Okay, thank you. Now, one of the top questions that's come up in our community is about both the safety and the effectiveness of these COVID vaccines for people with weakened immune systems. So I, I have a two-part question for you. So do we know that the COVID vaccines are considered safe for people with weakened immune systems? So say somebody who's being treated with chemotherapy for cancer. Um, and will the vaccines be able to actually stimulate a res a, an immune response in somebody mm -hmm. with a weakened immune system? In the clinical trials that tested the safety and efficacy of these vaccines, people who had active cancer um, and are in, in chemotherapy uh, cycles were excluded. If they were in remission, uh, they were allowed into these uh, clinical trials. So the short answer is that there are no data, you know, specifically in these uh, special populations. However, these individuals do stand to benefit from, um, from, from the vaccines because they are in the higher risk category of getting complications of disease. We do extrapolate to these populations. Otherwise, for example, I don't know that we study for uh, the tetanus in every population or the, um, you know, every other vaccine uh, in these populations. But nonetheless, if, if they are safe and effective, we tend to administer them to, to these individuals. And I think the Pfizer and Moderna are no different. These uh, populations tend to benefit because um, they are in the CDC uh, designated group at higher risk of complications, and um, they can receive those vaccines. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Now, uh, could you tell us the side effects of the vaccine? I know 
people have talked about that the part two of the vaccines seem to cause a few more side effects than part one and injection site pain seems to be the, a big one, but could you talk about some of the other ones? Uh, yes. Um, the injection site pain we did see with these vaccines, but they are not uh, out of line compared to other vaccines, and they do tend to go away. It's local, it's painful, and then it goes away. Uh, the, the slightly different observation with this vaccine is that following those two, we found that uh, there's a higher frequency, meaning a higher proportion of people um, end up with uh, low-grade fevers, uh, fatigue, headache, malaise, as I mentioned, increase from those one. Uh, and we see it more in those two. Um, these reactions tend to occur within a day or two after administering the second shot. And they tend to go away also within two days um, after their occurrence. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I, I It sounds a little bit like I personally had the um, Shingertz vaccine, which is also two mm -hmm. shots, um, a few more than a couple of weeks apart, but longer apart. But the, the second uh, dose, the second shot definitely caused a little bit more pain and a, a little bit more achiness than the first. So I, I don't know if it's fair to equate it to that, but um, I'm sure a lot of people who are, I don't I don't remember now if it's 50 or over, 55 and over who've had that shot, it might, is it fair to compare it to something like that? Indeed, it is fair. So the, uh, the however, the only difference is that with Shingris, we see this reaction after dose one or after dose two. Here, it seemed to be more predictable after dose two, but yes, that's a fair comparison. Okay, okay, great. Now, here's also another big question from our community. If someone gets vaccinated, they've had both of their doses, not just the first dose, but both doses, does that person still need to wear a mask and maintain physical distance from other people? And I guess kind of the, the flip side of that is, it, can they, could that person still infect someone? Great question. Uh, both studies, the Pfizer and the Moderna, have demonstrated that these vaccines prevent disease in the short term, meaning uh, symptomatic uh, disease with fever or um, cough, shortness of breath. Uh, these uh, these uh, illnesses caused by COVID. Uh, the we what we don't know is the effect of these vaccines asymptomatic infection, meaning people can have the virus replicating in their upper airways without knowing or having no to little symptoms. We do not know that these vaccines prevent the asymptomatic state. So it is advisable that even after getting those uh, vaccines to continue social distancing, uh, in the long run, we can imagine uh, a large fraction of our population having had the vaccine um, and herd immunity developing, hopefully by vaccines and not infection, then uh, there will be newer um, or different uh, guidances pertaining to um, to uh, relaxing these uh, social distancing recommendations. Okay. And do we know how long immunity 
or I shouldn't say immunity, but protection from the vaccine lasts. Um, I'm wondering, like, would somebody need to get another vaccine in, say, 5, 10, 20 years? That is unknown. Uh, at this point, both vaccines were only granted emergency use authorization based on short-term data. The uh, efficacy of this vaccine will continue to be examined um, for the long run to allow uh, a determination of the long-term efficacy. And then we can have more informed uh, recommendations regarding potentially how long the efficacy lasts. Okay. Now, if someone knows they've been infected with COVID-19, should that person still get the vaccine? It is not known how long after an infection a person is protected. We do know that the infections are really rare in the first 90 days. So the only so, so these individuals, if they are in a in a high risk category, meaning they are healthcare professionals or they are in the essential personnel group, it is recommended that they still get their vaccine. Uh, as a corollary to that, it, get their vaccines not when they are sick with COVID, but sometime later. Um, they are not prioritized to get the vaccine, of course. And in, in, in scarcity, let's say, it's probably better to give the, if there's one dose left, to give it to someone who has not had COVID. But they are not excluded for sure. They can go and get the vaccine if they are in a priority group. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I'm curious too, there's been story there have been stories in the news about a mutant strain of COVID nineteen in the United Kingdom. Um mm -hmm. I'm I'm guessing we don't have any data, but I'm gonna ask you the question anyway, because I'd rather have an expert say this than than me uh guessing. Do we know if the vaccines are effective on this strain? Do I mean do we have a sense that it might help or do we have any data at all? We don't have data at all. All we know is that this strain uh, sort of um, took over in the um, in the UK, and and it replaced a previous strain in 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 a good portion of the United Kingdom sometime between September and now. Um, we do not know that this virus is any uh, worse in terms of it causing illness, and we do not know whether it's more transmissible or um, replicates more in the airways than the other one. So a lot of it is unknown. All we know is that it replaced the, the previous strain or it became more prevalent in the southern uh, United Kingdom. I, I hear that, and actually I read that uh, there's a similar story taking place now in South Africa uh, without this virus showing that it is particularly causing more people to land in the hospital, for example. Uh, whether the vaccine works against uh, this emerging strain is under uh, intense uh, research right now. And a proxy or a way of, of sort of gauging that is by checking if the antibodies um, mounted against the common strains neutralize this virus in the lab. So um, last time I checked, I looked for these data. They're not out there, but this is the next step that will help us gauge whether uh, the vaccines and the other modalities work against these virus, viruses. 
Okay, thank you. Um, and to wrap up, I know that states are really deciding who gets the vaccines and when, and healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities are the, the priority, though they're the first in line. Um, I have read that older people, people 65 and older, and people with medical conditions that put them at high risk for COVID or COVID, severe COVID complications would be next. Um, and I also know that this all depends on how much vaccine is available. So this is a very long way of asking, do you have any sense when people who've been treated for cancer might be able to get vaccinated? Um, you know, are we thinking beginning of 2021, maybe mid, or or would they be like the next group in line? It varies by state. Um, in Texas, for example, um, individuals older than 65 or individuals with underlying medical condition of any age, um, including cancer, are sort of, they've been moved up the line, so to speak, so they may get it faster. Uh, that is, again, under debate right now. But as you mentioned, it is um, up to the states to um, sort of roll out the vaccine to the populations uh, recommended by the ACIP. Most everyone prioritized healthcare workers. I know New York, uh, in New York, the long-term care residents um, are 1B, but essential or essential personnel were moved up along with the healthcare personnel. So it varies by state. But my best guess is that individuals older than 65 or those with underlying uh, comorbidities, including cancer, uh, will likely get it in early 2021. In the meantime, um, infection prevention works. Masks, frequent hand washing, uh, keep your distance from others, do prevent uh, the, the illness, the, the infection and hence the illness. So if more of us abide by these measures, uh, it, it would be uh, efficient as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Osali. I really appreciate your insights on this topic. Well, thank you for having me and let me know if you have other questions. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, Email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.